Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest. You know, we have a guest that has done it, you know, a few times, you know, a serial founder and definitely with success. Uh, and yeah, I mean, today we're going to be learning about his journey. We're going to be learning about the early days, how, you know, he eventually got pushed into entrepreneurship, you know, talking about making calculated risks, cycles, you know, when it comes to product, you know, development and many, many more things. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mohsen Shahini. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So originally you were born in Iran. So how was life growing up there? And, you know, uh, give us a walk through memory lane. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been quite a long time since I left uh, Iran in 2005. But uh, back then when I grew up uh, in Iran, I think... Uh, uh, we didn't have, I guess, maybe some of the challenges that uh, it's there nowadays uh, when people hear from what's happening in, I guess, in Middle East and especially in Iran with all the all the you know, rise in, in women rights and all that. But when I grew up, um, it was uh, I grew up in a very academic environment. I would say my my dad was a librarian, so I grew up among books and. Uh, uh, and then I went to universities. Uh, one of you know I was very I accomplished the students in class, always a top student, uh, pretty much, you know, since early childhood. Uh, for me, you know, being the top of uh, what I was, I was doing was uh, always important. And, and, and in, in Iran, academic and the schools was really the, the, the main thing that parents cared about. So, um, yeah, I was there for about uh, 26 years in Iran, and I finished my undergraduate and graduate studies uh, in, uh, in engineering. Uh, you know, mechanical engineering, and manufacturings. I did work uh, as a, you know, I guess intern and also full time in industry in Iran and in, in kind of different industries in manufacturing and building things. And uh, as soon as I realized that uh, it was not really, you know, where um, I wanted to stay. So um, 2005, um, and then I decided to leave Canada, leave to go to US. Originally, I was planning to go to the States, but Back then, it was very difficult, and it still is today, I guess, to get visa, uh, especially from Iran, to to get to the state. So, um, uh, and the best way to get out of Iran was to apply for studies. So I applied for a PhD. Uh, I got an admission from University of Waterloo, which was the closest that I could get to the border to the to the MIT and Harvard, which is where I was planning to go ultimately as my dream uh, graduate programs. And uh, so my plan was always to ultimately get to the States. Uh, but then life changed when I came to Canada. Um, so I, I think I looks like things worked out here and I stuck in Canada and I'm happy. And what changed? What changed? Because it sounds like you had the eye in the U.S. You know, so what What would you say that uh, turned the, uh, the tables here? I think uh, even, yeah, so um, when I came to Canada, um, well, the University of Waterloo was where I went uh, to uh, as, you know, in engineering. And, you know, Waterloo was you know, probably the best school in Canada in engineering. And, um, and but my plan always was that, okay, well, I'm going to just get into MIT, Harvard. So actually, uh, you know, I was in touch with the schools in Harvard, MIT, and I was planning to go to do a postdoc or sort of a scholarship in MIT, Harvard there. 
And then uh, I managed to do that. It just right at the time that my venture took off, uh, which was Top Hat. And uh, I remember I was just postponing that, uh, you know, my J1 visa, which I took it to get to the Harvard. Uh, and I was talking to the researchers that, okay, well, can we postpone it? Because I'm just working on these little projects here. And maybe next year, and then I never actually happened to <laughs> to go to the Harvard. But what worked out, I think, for me is that like my business took off. Um, my first business, which I founded uh, when I was at the end of my PhD, uh, it just happened to be bigger than what I had originally had thought it would be. And Let's talk about that for a minute, because obviously, you know, at that point, it's when the recession hit, and obviously, the recession, you know, really changed the plans for everything. And that kind of like push you into really looking into ways in which you could fund your life and then also fund your studies. And that's basically, you know, like the result and how Top Hat, you know, came, came about. So walk us through, you know, what was the incubation process? What happened there? Uh, and how did, you know, something that you thought it was just like a lifestyle thing, you know, just to pay for the bills, you know, ended up, you know, like turning into something so big? Yeah, sure. Yeah, like I guess you know, it's funny. Like you know, uh, people may may many many of your audience may not you know might be too 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 little at the time to to recognize there was another recession. Then the recession is you know is sort of a periodic happening. Um, so going through one recession, sort of you know, you learn a lot. So that the next time it happens, then you you'll freak out less, I guess. So uh, I know that the market is pretty bad these days, but uh, having gone through that, you know, at the beginning of a previous venture. And knowing that actually, you know, that was more of an opportunity than actually a threat, um, you know, makes me more calm and I guess more optimistic right now in this kind of environment uh, in general. But um, yeah, you're right. Like, I think that was basically the first recession I ever experienced in my life. I never knew what the meaning of recession was. I was, you know, always at school. So I never really had to deal with, you know, making economic choices in my life. You know, I was, you know, I was just a student. So I was not really sort of responsible for, you know, making monies and all that. And then, but it was my graduate studies where it, it actually recession got all its way to my PhD because my um, my fund for my research was such that it would get renewed every year for whatever reason I you know. But it was almost guaranteed. No one thought that you know your research, you know PhD would not get renewed. You know you, you get a scholarship. So, but you you I, I was always signing a contract at the beginning of my PhD. Hey, this is not guaranteed, but you know this is another year of a scholarship, which I was like you know it looks like it was just like a formality at the time, but. Except that in 2008, my supervisor told me that, hey, well, you got to finish your PhD earlier than what you planned because, um, because there was no fund for you in 2009. And I was like, whoa, why, what happened? And I, was, I remember I was very upset about this because I, I was doing my, I loved my research and I was very ambitious. And I felt that my, my, my supervisor was not really accommodating. I remember I was not very happy about the way that he, he told me that you have to go and work in Tim Horton. Tim Horton is like, a, you know, is a franchise sort of a, a Starbucks coffee in, in, in Canada. One knows. So that was the wording my, prof my professor says like, hey, look, if, if you really want to do go to this MIT Harvard, um, which you plan to go uh, as, as a visiting scholar, you have to fund it yourself, which means you got to go take maybe, a, you know, four months off and go and work in Tim Horton and then save your money. And then you go there because I have no money to send you to Harvard, MIT. And obviously, MIT, Harvard guys, they also said, um, you know, they, they're in a position that uh, they had a lot of applicants. So they said, you need to be self-funded when you come here. So sort of that pushed me. Basically, that kind of pushed me to start something. <laughs> and um, yeah, original idea was that, it, you know, it was 2009, and it was just right a year after Apple Store was open. 
And uh, we were hearing from Waterloo, especially being in Waterloo, I was hearing, you know, almost on a weekly basis that a dude, you know, made an app and then released it in Apple Store, 99 cents, and it got 10,000 downloads over, you know, over a week or over a night, made $10,000. So I was kind of start see, hearing these stories over and over. And uh, my, my roommate, who was also, um, you know, just finished his stu uh, studies in, in Waterloo, he was building these apps and was telling me that, okay, he was going to release it. And then, um, and then ultimately I decided to join him and, and, and just kind of building mobile apps. I was thinking that I started building mobile apps, maybe for a summer, maybe we can release some, some games in Apple store and maybe one of them hits the market and then we can make, you know, 10,000, $15,000 and I can save it. And then I go to MIT Harvard. That was my original, <laughs> the sort of dream of, uh, becoming a venture, uh, sorry, become an entrepreneur. So that's how it started. You know, like how did the team come together, you know, and, and then also how did you guys, you know, iterate, you know, the product and the, and the business model so that it ended up becoming what it is today. I think that if first right. thing you could walk us through the incubation, right. through, you know, uh, finally launch it and then, you know, right. what ended up being the business model, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. So yeah, when we, it's funny because we didn't actually, what it ended up becoming ultimately, I, I would tell you that had was not anything close to what we were in, uh, initially planning. So that was like, very, very different. So yes, as I said, what we started was just building a, game, building a bunch of, you know, app, app store games um, and, and just, you know, selling it in app store. That was what the original idea was. But then the way that we pivoted was that, um, so we, it was me and my, my co-founder, both of us are engineers, so we knew how to code. He knew better than me and I had to learn Objective-C, but it was, it was not difficult. So I started learning and, and building up. Um, so it was two of us that started working. And then the other things happened was that because it was a recession, a lot of, we called co-op students here in Canada, like a students go on interns, like, you know, they have to go on you know, some semester to work in the industry. There were no jobs for them out there. So there was a lot of these co-op students in school where they were willing to work for free for sort of industries as a gaining experience. So we tapped into that actual opportunity. And we went to Waterloo and we posted the job. We said, hey, we're looking for, you know, two or three co-op students. These are engineers. They were probably, you know, younger brain and they just also, you know, fresher. And also we, we just wanted to, you know, develop faster. So we hired, I would say, like two or three uh, co-op students. Um, you know, two of them pretty, very sharp. Um, they were, you know, coding very well. So there was a small team, you know, we brought them into our you know, apartment. We turned our uh, living room to a sort of office space, <laughs> sort of. Um, uh, the, the, the typical, I guess, uh, story of garage uh, uh, office. Um, and yeah, so there was a small team of us and then we started building games. So we, we did that for about two months, I would say, like building various kinds of games, uh, releasing the Apple Store. And we just realized that the mark, you know, the Apple Store was already saturated. It was not, it was no longer easy to just, you know, release a game and then it gets to the top, you know, top 100 and ultimately top 30 and top 10 and just gets its way to viral growth. We, we did that for a couple of games and we realized that that strategy is very difficult to get to the market. Basically, you're releasing something on an app store and relying on a distributor, which is app store, to make you money. So the, ne the next idea which I had was that, okay, well, let's just build something so that we can control the sales. Because it, right now, it, we can't control the sales. We have to, we, we have to be we're lucky to maybe be featured in Apple Store because apps Store just sometimes randomly feature some apps and those features apps sometimes, you know, make their way up to the top 30 or whatever. And if you're not really in top 100 in Apple Store, you're never going to 
grow at all. Like the, I don't know if they, what it is today. I, I don't. I haven't actually. I'm not really checking out. But back then, the way that you grow is that you just release something, and then you happen to be in one top hundred. And if your app is very good, then you just go, go coming down. You know, forty, thirty, ten, and it just like becoming like you know, viral growth. So it wasn't possible. Then, so the next was it. What is it? What is it that you could do to control the sales? We're like, okay, let's build some sort of what we call enterprise app store, like building something in you know, releasing some things in app, but not at the at the dollars of ninety nine cents, which makes no sense for us to sell, but some things that is more expensive. Uh, which makes it, um, you know, has the unit economics in it that we can actually go, to, you know, door to door or hire salespeople to sell. That was like the initial idea. It was not even not it was it, it was not even a product. It was just like an idea of how to sell something in the app store, which makes sense. And um, so we're sort of thinking various ideas: what we can sell, what we can build that can, you know, sell more than you know. You know, we talked about a couple of ideas. One of the ideas I had was that maybe, you know, sell a training cocktail training app for restaurants where we can go to restaurants and sell it for them so that they can train their staff, you know, much more efficiently so that they can learn how to, you know, make cocktails by like some sort of, uh, you know, interactive apps, sort of like, you know, training apps for the staff members. Um, that was one idea. And then, I mean, along the same way, it's like, you know, the digital education sort of started coming to, to my mind. And, uh, you know, we started thinking about, and I was at the time, I, you know, I was TA in a, in a university. So I was, Thinking about teaching students in 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 a classroom, I was teaching calculus. So, and then I present that to my co-founder. I said, okay, well, you know what? Why don't we just build some things in instead of these games? Why don't we just build these games to teach the students some things, and then we sell it to the teachers, so teachers can use this to make their job easier. So that was again that's the sort of iterations of, of second, and then again we we have to pivot because we went to teachers. We built a few of these, you know, mockups and you know, sort of MVPs. We demo, you know, went to, you know, you know, talk to a bunch of professors, and we realized that obviously teachers didn't have money. They're like, okay, well, we don't have money to pay for this. And then we're like, okay, well, what we should do? We then start talking to the deans and university administrations, and realize that, oh, their sales cycle is so big, like it's not. We have to basically rely on them meeting one at once every few months, which we, we, we can't really go as fast because how we, we are small. Like I was planning to just do this in a four months and then get $10,000. And I was like, it's it's un, it's very risky for me to, to be just waiting for like a couple of months to see if my idea is going to work out or not. So then we, again, like my co-founder who had came up with this genius idea that, okay, well, you look, why don't we just sell it to the professors, but ask the students to pay? Sort of, like sort of agency model. And then he got that again from the experience of seeing the textbook publishers do that. So publishers, you know, have the textbook for centuries, professors adopting it. And um, then the students pay. We're like, oh, wow, that's an interesting idea. We never saw it in software. Uh, we've seen it in, I guess, textbook in publishing industry, but it was a unique idea. So it was a little bit, I was I wasn't skeptical. I was like, I'm not sure if professors going to agree with that because they say that this is not a hardware. It's not, you know, it's not a, physical things. But you know what? When we went and talked to the teachers, we, you know, uh, he proved me wrong and we, we realized that actually teachers were open with that. And then that's how basically uh, our business model started working. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then how, what ended up being the business model? How are you guys making money with Top Hat? The business model after iteration, um, uh, it became um, that we will sell subscription to the students. So we sell it to the teachers. Uh, so teachers are, you know, the ones that they made the decisions to adopt this software as a part of the course uh, assignments. And the students obviously have no choice but to buy it because they're like, uh, like a doctors that they ask the patients to, you know, buy a sort of prescriptions. Even though the prescription is, is prescribed by a doctor, but the students uh, or the patients have to basically go on and use it. Same model here. Uh, students had to pay to get their course assignment done. And then uh, professors basically uh, make the decision. So at what point do you realize, hey, you know, what it seemed to be like a small project now is getting out of hands and is becoming something pretty big? Yes, it would. Um, as soon as we, we were able to get this uh, first adoption, which would be a few professors in the University of Waterloo, where I actually had, you know, found them door to door and, and got them to, to adopt it in their upcoming semester. And I noticed that, oh, okay, they're really like going to adopt it in their upcoming semester. So now we are talking about, and I started doing the math in my head. I was like, okay, well, we've got, you know, thousand students and each of them going to pay us $20. So we're going to get $20,000. Just like, what if we do this more? What if we, what if we do this 10,000 students to, you know, 100,000 students? Like I started doing math and I was like, oh, wait, like this is actually a serious opportunity here. Um, so that's, I decided to pause my PhD. <laughs> I, I didn't quit in a sense. I was like, okay, let me just pause PhD. Let's just do it a bit more. And, uh, and, and, you know, ultimately I finished my PhD on the weekends and evenings, but, uh, but, I, but I never left to MIT Harvard. Now, when it came to, uh, perhaps, you know, like the, the product, because I mean, you're, you're a product kind of guy, you know, what, what did it look like, you know, going from zero to one? And then also talk to us about product uh, cycles when it comes to development. For sure. Yeah. So look, I think as a, like, you're right. Like I am a more of a product type entrepreneur. Uh, I, 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 I can't think of business model without thinking of product. Uh, like I can't think of like making money without thinking about, okay, what's the, how I'm adding values or what's the things that I'm fixing a problem. So, um, and I would say that you actually need both to, to just like, if you're just product person and you don't really you know, the business, you know, making business uh, sense uh, or thinking about how we make money is not your strength. You definitely need to kind of corner up with someone who, who thinks that way because 
that was my weakness, I would say, at least early days of uh, my, and now I learned how to think, um, you know, on the business side. But, but I would say, like, you know, the basically, the way that it works is that you definitely need to think about a, uh, a pain that uh, someone has, and then you need to, and there's probably like a lot of books written about it, but you need to be able to solve that pain in a much more effective ways than you could other people's do. And more, more effective, I mean, like, you know, as as you have maybe seen in the, in the book of zero to one, it's not just you make it, you know, 1.5 X better or two X better. Like you need to think about your solution, make it like 10 X better. So you've got really have to think about solving a problem in a, in a significantly better way than anyone else has done it. That's just like, I think that the principle is that you just need to be really solving a real problem, not just like a, a problem that is, is good to solve, but it's not really, it's not great to solve, so to speak. It's, it's a, it has to be significant enough. So for us, um, what I would do then, so then when you do that, solving a problem, then you have got to test it. So I think the biggest part of the uh, biggest mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make, and this is just classic, everyone says that, but I see I see it happening over and over again when I'm advising other startups um, everywhere, is that like engineers especially and, and product uh, people in you know they also, they, they tend to want to perfect, make the perfect solutions before they go and, and talk to customers. And that's a, that's a classic that's a mistake. So you're going to get out and you're going to basically talk to as many customers as, as you can as early as possible. You would be wasting resources and you would be just basically, you know, get a running out of cash if you don't really get that feedback pass. So you really have to make this, you know, cycle of building, shipping, getting feedback and redoing it and iterating. Like it has to be the shortest, fastest possible in order for you to, to have a very de- decent chance of succeeding your startup. And I think that's what we did very well at Taobat. You know, we didn't just build the, like we literally just built over a night, over one night. Like we built a mock-up of some things that you can press some things and you just do some things. And then that was enough for us to demonstrate it. So, and then we start going door to door and talk to teachers. Hey, look at this example. This is the idea. And here's the extension of it. This we are thinking about how to build on top of it. And we started like, you know, getting their feedback. And then we, we started iterating on uh, on what they said. So um, that's definitely one side, which is just like getting customers. And obviously on the money money side, you do need to be mindful of, okay, who is going to pay for it? Uh, you know, you need to validate the, the business model of it as well, because, you know, you might just go and talk to a lot of people and professors would say, like, they told us, yeah, this is a great idea. Awesome. Yeah, if you build it, I'm going to use it. But then are you actually doing, how, do you have a budget for, for paying for this? And then they're like, no, I have to get approval from my chairs. And then how long that, that cycle takes to, uh, is your chair is, is has a budget and a lot of often the times you realize that oh like they, they don't even know or if they know it's going to take forever so uh, and then you have to think about okay well we have, to, we have to change that business model because you know selling it to these guys is not going to work even though you build them build something that they really need it so um yeah all of this it just comes from like iterations and, and testing so then talk to us also about fundraising how much capital did the uh, a company raise well, I mean, in total, Topad, I think we raised, you know, hundreds of million dollars in, you know, various kind of series uh, through, you know, series E, uh, F, I guess, even. Uh, but, um, but yeah, but obviously the most important part was the early days of fundraising to just like improve the concept. So, um, you know, for us, like, and that's a typical, we, we start like, you know, using our own money, you know, our credit card sort of things, you know, we max out our credit card. Um, uh, I had $5,000 of saving, I remember. Um, and I thought that I had a lot of money by the way. I was like, oh, wow, I have $5,000 in, in the bank. So, and I, you know, I 
I, I was probably stupid if I'm going back and thinking about it. Like that's one of the things when you're young and entrepreneur, you don't realize that how optimistic you are and how blindly optimistic sometimes you are. So, but this is probably good, uh, you know, if you're smart, because then you don't have the fear of failure or anything. So I literally just like, I had $5,000 and I talked to my co-founder. I was like, Hey, uh, you know, you're, you know, if you don't, if you don't have money to hire these students, uh, because you have to still pay them, like, you know, that you know, $1,000 or so. I'm I'm willing to loan uh, our own company the three thousand dollars, and then once we are able to raise, you know, charge our customers, then I'm going to get that three thousand dollars back. Which obviously happened only, you know, after you know Series A, where we had a lot of money, which we were lucky to get to that stage because we would be really, you know, most likely we would have. 99% chance I should have been like prepared to lose that 3,000. But I wasn't prepared mentally to lose that 3,000 at the time. So I think, you know, you, you've got to have that sort of like, you know, gut that you, 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 you don't, you're not fearful. One thing that helped me personally, by the way, was that I was an engineer. And both of me and my founder were engineers. We, we were in this position that, look, worst case scenario, even if we die, like even if our customer, like we don't get it off, like we lose our money. Is it easy for us to find a job? Like we will, we're not gonna be like a homeless out and you know just being just starving to death. Like we really would be able to just find a job easily. So it's like it's one time opportunity in our life that we are gonna build something, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we have nothing to lose. That kind of mentality we had, which maybe not for everyone, but we had it both of us. So uh, yeah, we use our own money. That's first. The second things was that we. We are still looking for grants. Um, you know, I look, you know, I went to the dean of engineering at my school. I said, like, "Hey, I have these ideas," and and I was able, to, you know, they were entrepreneur minded. Um, you know, the dean of engineering gave me ten thousand dollars. Like, okay, go and you know experiment with this. So we got you know ten thousand dollars from there, ten thousand dollars from like something from government grants here and there, until then we get the the first customers. As soon as we got our first paying customers, which was those three classrooms that they were paying us, then the investors were interested in talking to us, and then we were able to. Raise our angel, the first round of angels from local angel investors, which was two hundred thousand dollars of check, which I thought of at the time was like, oh, two hundred thousand, like we are good for life. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know if that helps, but uh, I, there is no really formula for fundraising. I would say early days. Uh, I think it, it's a lot of this is about your network, uh, your own personal fund, and your friends and families around you, and people that they, they they're willing to support you. And obviously the um, the company, I mean, incredible because it has raised uh, over two hundred million uh, nowadays. I think that the public uh, numbers are two hundred thirty four million. So I mean, really remarkable. Now, as you guys were growing this, you know, I mean, you 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 took it all the way to let's say about forty million ARR, and at that point, you know, you decide it's time to leave. Why? What what happened there? I mean, obviously you you built this rocket ship, you know, incredible company uh, on a really great trajectory. I mean, why turning page? I wish that I had lived a second life uh, and maybe my second company is my second life. I would say, look, you know, we made tons of mistakes in, in, in my first business, I would say, uh, even though, you know, even though it ended up being a success story, but you know, it could have been better. You can always say that it could have been better. And you know, why, why didn't we become like a, the, 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 the next uh, big uh, Google of the world type thing. So you always feel like, we, we, we were onto some things and um, and I, I felt that we got to the point where that momentum that we had early days were, was not there. And that was for various kind of reasons that we had. I think for me, I was a product person and I always wanted to innovate and I always wanted to build 
things on top of what you know what we had offering or at top and i know it's just try to like increase the time like okay now we have this now what else we can do now we validate this we're making money now what else we can do type things but we get to the point where i think at the 40 million arr that the you know the the companies had a lot more stakeholders so we have raised a lot of capital you know we've got a lot of like boards and, and investors and new execs and so everyone has a different opinions around how the, the which directions a business needs to take which is probably you know for the good of the shareholders uh because you know shareholders at, at some point they want to you know re- get return on the investment so uh so you know it it, it, it then uh, unless you become like an influential, you know, founder that you could just control all the board and convince them of your vision and, and mission, then you lose that sort of the, your, you know, your uh, your powers or of controlling your destiny, so to speak. So I felt that I was not controlling the destiny of Tapad. I felt that the, the thing that I wanted to do there wasn't necessarily, you know, being done. The direction I want to take it was not the direction that the company was going. And ultimately, you know, my, my passion was to, um, you know, to to build things in education, which I'm doing with my second company, Critic. Uh, and I, I was wanting to build a top hat originally because that that made sense, like as an organic evolution of top hat to add this. But then it wasn't necessarily the priority for a business. Uh, they said I have to wait for maybe you know another year, another year, another year, and um, to give me the funding. And I was like, okay, well, the market opportunity. The opportunity might be lost, so I decided to to take it off and start it over again. So then, tell us, you know, what did that transition look like? Well, so it, it was my tenth anniversary uh, at Top Hat, and at that time, then uh, it was just perfect timing because uh, my the team that I was managing kind of got merged to the you know to to another team and a product. So I had to think about the next things that I wanted. Did do at Top Hat. Um, usually, the, my my role at Top Hat was doing you know initiate new ideas and test it out and, and experiment with it and and prove it and then give it to the you know sales and and and, and the product team to build it or to to take it from you know one to hundred. I guess I would take from zero to one. So that was my it was supposed to be my next zero to one project that I would do at Top Hat. But the problem this time was that like you know the ideas that I had wasn't getting enough of the attention. So. Then uh, you know, then then, then I, I decided to take what we call like a sabbatical. Um, so I take three months of sabbatical to just figuring out exactly what I want to do. Um, then I went to something called Vipassana. My co-founder, who is also my wife, um, we met her earlier today. We actually built the second business together. So she she had gone to this sort of Vipassana, which is like you know ten days of silent retreat where you go and you don't you don't talk to anyone. You just start, you know sort of. Thinking deeply inside for ten, uh, for sixteen hours a day. Um, so that was sort of a, an opportunity for me to take a break after ten years and thinking about okay, what, what I'm going to do in my life. Um, and at that time, I realized that yes, you know, I am not ready to go back to Top Hat after the sabbatical. I think that I want to give it a try to build my own uh, company again, but this time making less mistakes. You know, do things that I want to do. Uh, I I didn't do, and they want to do it better. So uh, basically, I decided to, to do my life again from the, from the beginning at that time with my co-founder. So then let's talk about Critic uh, now. You know, talk to us about Critic. You know, like what ended up uh, being the business model of Critic? How are you guys making money today with Critic? Yeah, so it's very similar in terms of, I guess, the, the business model uh, and how it works. Uh, the, 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 I guess, uh, at least at the way that it starts. So we are still in, in the same space. So I guess if Top Hat was, you know, selling Apple, you know, we're to to a market, we're selling orange to the same market. So it's sort of a 
same business model, uh, same go-to-market at the beginning at least, uh, but then different product. Um, uh, so and that's what I think that made it easier second time around because I knew the market very well and I knew uh, like how I need to go about building a sales team. So but what Critic is, is um, it's peer assessment software. So uh, we just started noticing that uh, you know, the, the way that the students are assessed on the multiple choice question, objective assessments, they're becoming sort of a, you know, uh, obsolete and not, not effective. And there needs to be new ways for professors to, uh, to grade the students to assess them. And um, so we started building this platform, which is sort of a, you know, fair assessment with AIs. And um, the way that I did this time around was very classic. And, and, and what I did was that, again, I, I, I hired an engineer over a weekend. It was one of top hat hires in engineers, actually. Um, he is you know, one of the best engineers. He actually ended up having his own company. But he, he, he came over a weekend and then I talked to him about, me, my, like, here's the idea that I have. As I was talking, he was actually coding. Like, he literally started coding what I was talking about, how to do. So we, over, a, over two days, which is Saturday and Sunday, we built MVP together. Um, and that was, that was, I was still in, you know, in a top at the time. It was my sabbatical. So I wasn't really thinking about taking up, but I was just building, thinking about this product. So we, we, we literally zero investment. I built an MVP, which was good enough for me to show it to professors. So I took that. After that, I went and set a goal for myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to take it to uh, talk to 10 people. I'm going to talk to 10 professors. If out of these 10 professors, uh, my, my goal was uh, uh, five. I said, if, if five, five of these professors said, okay, if you build this, I'm going to adopt it in my upcoming semester, then I'm going to resign from my role at Topad and I'm going to work on this. If it's only one or two, maybe not. So... That's how I did it. And the way that I approached the customer was that because I was already founder of Topad, I felt that people would be biased. Because if they know that I'm founder of Topad, they're like, okay, yeah, I will do it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just basically go on anonymously. So I literally just, again, like I went the same thing, complete anonymous, talked to people that they didn't know me uh, from different universities. Um, um, a few of them, they knew me uh, because I had connection with them, but I think it's very important. But I made sure that more majority of them, they had no idea that I, I built a company or anything. I just approached them as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur. And again, like I, I collected their feedback. One mistake that a lot of founders, again, make, and I, I, I made it at Topad, it's good to mention it here, never, never take the feedback from someone who knows you or is your family member or is your close friends or your supervisor, whatever, seriously, because they're completely biased. You know, I've seen people that say, oh, yeah, like I'm building this. I've got feedback from my you know, friends. And like, no, they, they really, you need to discount them heavily. They just love you. They want, they don't want to disappoint you. They say, yes, this is good. So you always want to talk to someone who has no interest in saying no to you or saying yes to you. Um, so you have to be completely unbiased. So that's what I did exactly here. Completely anonymously, uh, you know, approach people. And then out of those 10 people, I came out with seven of them. They said, yes, if you build this, I'm going to build it. Actually, I talked to 12 people out of those 12, nine people said yes. Um, and uh, seven of them ended up actually using it. So, yeah, th that's, that's, how, um, that's how I approached the market this time around. And what was the uh, approach to of capitalizing the business as well? Well, look, this time around, obviously, I had more than 5,000 in my bank. So uh, it was very good. And, and, it, and this is fortunate for uh, being, I guess, uh, you know, uh, a successful entrepreneur. Because once you're a successful entrepreneur, I think you have this uh, advantage of at least not relying on, you know, proving yourself to people because you already have done it. First of all, you've already done it. Second of all, you have enough money in the bank that you don't really need to get investment. So 
yeah, so I would say that I used my personal funding. I didn't have a ton of money, but I um, I had um, I hadn't cashed enough for like in at the time of uh, of my share of top ad, but I had around hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. So, and I was willing to put all the hundred fifty thousand dollars actually on this new venture, which is still crazy, don't to speak. But I was, but I was, but 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 I was. You know, I was making calculated risk. I was like, okay, I'm going to put this 150 up to 150, but I have my top hat shares and I knew the top hat maybe secondary and then I can sell my secondary in the next round. So I was just trying to do this sort of timing so that if I use this 150, I can cash out more from top hat. So, um, yeah, I would say I, 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 uh, the first 150,000 I, uh, put from my own money, uh, maybe, you know, 150, 200,000. Then, then after that, we we have already got traction. So we got to the position where we already had you know hundred thousand revenue. Uh, when we get to about hundred hundred thousand dollars revenue, um, then I started like do fundraising. So and then I uh, but I had a good network, so it was fairly easy for me to do the uh, this time around the, the fundraising. So I raised the capital much faster this time around. So then, so then in this case, you know, imagine obviously vision, you know, is always important, you know, with investors. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Critic is fully realized. What does that world look like? What the world would look like? Oh man, um, <laughs> you know, maybe I should make a comment before I say that. So I am actually when I used Top Hat, I was more of a, like a, you know, uh, much more visionary type entrepreneur just like i was thinking about steve jobs and i was thinking about you know um elon musk type visionary like you have these big visions and then you want to materialize it no matter what the word says no i can tell you that now i have modified that uh that approach to the to the business especially education especially with all the changes that happened in the last two years like you cannot like it was just very difficult to predict like all the, the vision that i had uh, four years ago for critic when I started, uh, it, I, I now with the chat GPT and all the other things coming here, that just sort of makes no sense. So um, I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, bore you and the team to tell tell you about the vision I had. But ultimately, um, the idea was to try to, uh, you know, uh, build educational content, uh, you know, crowdsourcing it. So instead of educational content to be built by publishers which is expensive and, and it takes a lot of effort and, and resources and money, you crowdsource again using a students in mass population that they would create the educational content themselves as a, as a way to prove that they actually um, they learn the material. So that was the idea of, uh, of, of, of the vision of the critic. Because that, because that's what the problem that tried to solve a top ad. We were trying to, you know, we tried to make interactive content for education to, 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 you know, to get rid of these textbooks which are expensive and very boring. But the challenge was that it was very expensive to build this interactive content. You have to, you know, hire a lot of engineers, and 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 these contents get, uh, you know, outdated, and then you have to, you know, keep keep changing them. So, and that, and then I was thinking about how we can build build an engine which where we can create these content. Um, you know, on an ongoing basis using the mass, just almost like a Wikipedia type content that is constantly takes care of itself, but much more interactive and much more accurate, which is used for educational settings in the courses, in the university, and in the, in, the, in the classroom. So that was sort of my initial idea that I was planning to do it with this, creating this sort of a marketplace of, of, of students to, to teachers kind of ideas. But I would say that with chat GPT and everything that's happening, that that, that Sort of directions is, is sort of change. like you could you could utilize a lot of the AI's capabilities right now that you can envisioning things that AI's can do that is very different. But if I want to tell you what the world looks like in you know if the vision of critic is happening is that you know it would be a world where I would say you know um, you go to learn some things 
we don't have to, you don't have to read, you know, hundreds of pages of content. You would be able to learn things very fast, you know, using highly interactive content, and you would be able to do it by, you know, through a community of uh, not only one teacher who teaches you, but like a lot of other people that are there to, to, to learn the same things. You kind of engage with them. There's a lot of peer interactions there, and then you you can quickly learn things faster and get feedback and move on. And that, imagine that could be the settings for any sort of environment, you know, learning environment. So whether it's in a university now, because sometimes universities might, you know, change also, might evolve to something different, might be micro-credentials, might be... Um, you know, I guess the, the adult learning, distance learning, things like that. So that direction is that can go anywhere. But at the end of the day, the idea here is that how we can really make learning faster. Uh, you don't really have to spend a lot of time, a lot of uh, energy to be able to to learn something. It should be much more efficient and faster. And that's sort of the, the vision that we're pursuing here at Critic. So then let me now uh, ask you about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back to the moment where you are now looking into maybe like doing something to finance yourself and your your expenses, you know, at that time of the PhD. And let's say you were able to give a conversation, to have a conversation with that younger Mosin, your younger self, and being able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would that be? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, there would be a lot probably. I would say if I want to pick one uh, to younger self about, um, and advice that I could have uh, would be, be 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 less you know for me <laughs> like be more open to feedback I guess like be le- be less arrogant in a sense to think that you know everything you figure everything out I think I mean look like arrogance sometimes it seems like for a lot of founders you know just having that sort of feeling that you know everything and you kind of figure it out and go it seems to be good things but I think in a in a sense that. It's, it's good to be ambitious. It's good to be driven. But we definitely, I, 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 there was a lot of opportunity for me to be able to learn things by, you know, from someone who was telling me, and then I kind of ignored them because I felt that they didn't know what they're talking about. I felt that they didn't understand me. I felt that I was not being heard. I felt that I was, you know, I get emotional, sort of. You can say like, um, you know, just set aside the emotion and stay, you know, as open as you can to what people are telling you and and seek out their you know the the mentors that are they're they're older than you and and and, and listen to them i don't i you know like it's hard to say because i did i was not actually a person who was not listening i would go and always talk to people and then ask their opinion but i think there was some part of me that when i was younger i felt that you know i i felt that i was right about a lot of things that i was not so um and i don't know really you know, there is any piece of advice that I can give someone, as you know, to believe me. Because if I give that piece of advice to myself at the time, I probably would dismiss myself. I would say, okay, you don't understand. You're older, Mosin. You're not young anymore. So I might just be <laughs> criticizing myself. I don't know. It's hard. Really, it's hard. <laughs> I hear you. So, Mosin, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, they, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I usually check my LinkedIn. So uh, go and find my profile on LinkedIn. And uh, happy to, to help in, in any capacity. Amazing. Well, hey, Mosen, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.